0: I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, chapter 4. As we look at the first six verses in our Scripture reading, the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesian church about their walk, their walk with Christ, with a special emphasis on the unity of the body. What is the characteristic of our relationship with the Lord Jesus, and is it consistent with what we profess, because so much is seen before heard, either will affirm your testimony, the things that you say, or it will discredit your testimony in how we carry our attitude as we walk with the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. O God of heaven, we give you thanks for your word endures forever. And we pray, Father, once again, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and mighty things from thy precious word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Writer and NPR National Public Radio commentator, Heather King, She's a recovering alcoholic who has come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and she reflected on her initial experience with the church in an article that was written a few years ago. She writes, My first impulse to think, my, I don't want to get sober, or in the case of the church, worship with these nutcases or boring people or people with different politics, tastes in music, food, books, or whatever. Nothing shatters our ego like worshiping with people we did not handpick. The humiliation of discovering that we are thrown in with extremely unpromising people, people who are broken, misguided, wishy-washy, out for themselves, people who are us. But we don't come to church to be with people who are like us, she writes, in the way we want them to be. We come because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and the church is the best place, the only place to be while we all struggle to figure out what that means. We come because we'd be hard-pressed to say which is the bigger of the two scandals of God—that He loves us, or that He loves everyone else. Unquote. That so characterizes so many inner thoughts sometimes that some people have. The temptation is to desire to go to a church where everyone is like us. Everyone agrees in the taste of music, the taste of food, the culture, the political views, the educational background or the sports. The temptation is to want to hang out with only those that are like us, who are most like us who like everything that we like. The temptation is to be in the same small group Bible study or be in the same ministry or invite people over to our home are similar to us, who look like us, and get along with us. After all, that is safe. In fact, the safest place some people feel is to be all by ourselves. Anything but to be with those nutcases, as Heather might write. We may not verbalize it, but... There's a reason why people who are strangers are called strangers. It's because sometimes they're strange. Maybe your feeling would be like Heather King, who would rather handpick. Pick and choose who would be in the church, usher out the door. Those who would be different. Those who don't look like you or make you feel uncomfortable. Those who would look at things differently or whatnot. It's a good thing that God doesn't allow us to pick. It's a good thing that he picks Do you know what kind of people make up the church of God? The Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians, he tells them in chapter 1, verse 26, he says to the church at Corinth, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong, which are And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. The church is filled with people who are unwise, people who are weak, people who are foolish, people who are not the rich and famous, people that the world would generally despise, Paul says. Why? So that there's no pride. So that there's no pride. But the temptation is often strong, often strong like the laborers in the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, who saw that there were tares among the wheat, or at least thought they could figure it out, and they said to the Lord Jesus, you want us to pull out all the tares? And the Lord Jesus says, no, for a while you are gathering up the tares. You may uproot the wheat with them. One of the wonderful things about God's church is the diversity of God's people, for he will redeem people from every tongue and tribe and nation, people from all walks of life, people from all backgrounds who look different, act different, who have different perspectives, people from all parts of the world. Differences in the diversity of the church make it unique, make it interesting, make it something that enhances our appreciation of God's salvation for all people. This past year, for example, we were treated not to one, but two, two African children's choirs who had come and ministered to our church, and I thought to myself, wow, what a joy it is, what a joy it is that we can have people from around the world come and share with us their culture and their passion for the Lord Jesus. Some are threatened by differences, some are threatened by the awkwardness or the uncomfortableness, and but as the church grows, it, uh, the diversity grows, and it is all the more imperative that what we do and how we walk as a church, we walk with the Lord, and as a church, these characteristics of our walk grow even more as we try our best to walk in humility and gentleness and patience as this passage talks about, tolerance for one another and love and unity. These are the things that should characterize our walk, and these are the things in this particular passage that Paul speaks of specifically. Now, I know many of you are in the hermeneutic Sunday school class in the morning, and this passage is a good one for a slight sidebar here, a good one to make note of how we interpret Scripture. And as we look at this particular passage in verses 1 through 6, when you're studying the Bible, again, as a sidebar type of a thing, I want to point out that when you're trying to study a portion of Scripture and you're trying to find out what the main point of a particular passage is, in a particular passage such as this, which would be called a didactic or a teaching or a instructional passage... There's something that you look for in particular. Again, this is a particular type of genre as opposed to a prophetic passage or a parable or a narrative or something like poetry. When you're looking at a teaching passage, which you find most often in the epistles of Paul or Peter or John in the epistles, you're looking for the main verb. That's the point of the passage. That is the point of the passage. You're looking for the main verb in a section of text, and in this particular text, it is easy to see. As we look at the number of verses that are here, it says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. And the main verb in this particular text, in these first number of verses, is the verb to walk. That's the main idea of this entire section of text. And everything else hangs off of that main verb. That's how you find out what the main point of a passage is. So when we look at this, we look at this and we look, everything else revolves around our walk with Christ. Who's speaking of our walk? The Apostle Paul. What kind of walk is it? Verse 1, a worthy walk. What is it characterized by? It's characterized by humility and gentleness of patience, tolerance, with a specific sub-point of preserving the unity of the Spirit, and that is a sub-point, and he goes on to explain how that is. But it's all about our walk, and so when you look at a particular passage, such as a teaching passage as this, you look for the main verb, and that's how you generate your outline and things like that. That's the emphasis of the passage. So we look at this text today, and we see what God tells us about our walk with Christ, about our walk with Christ. Our walk with Christ comes out of the things that we believe. And that's how the entire book of Ephesians is laid out. In fact, that's how a number of books are laid out the book of Colossians, the book of Philippians. But here in the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are all about doctrine, about our privilege as a believer, about the blessings that God has showered upon us, about how God has saved us by his grace, about how God has granted to us the commission and the treasure of his gospel. And then chapters four through six talk about the practicality of how we are to live in the light of what we know, because one of the consistent things that we learn throughout the scriptures that Jesus teaches in Luke twelve forty eight, he says there, for everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they have entrusted much, they will ask all the more. And that particular saying is in the context of spiritual privilege, that we're to be ready for the master when he comes again. And it's the old adage with Privilege comes responsibility. That's how this book is laid out. With great privilege of being a believer in Christ, there is great responsibility in how we're to live. And that's how it is with many things. Some of you are starting to learn how to drive and you're getting your driver's license. With that privilege comes great responsibility of how not only you drive, but the insurance, the gas, the maintenance, all of those things, the care of a car. If you're a part of a sports team, you want to be a member of that team, you've got to go to the practices, you've got to work hard, you've got to be a team player, you've got to respect the coaches and the referees. There's responsibility if you want to have the privilege of playing on that team. The Lord has granted to us a beautiful facility, and with that privilege comes the responsibility. In fact, nearly every privilege carries with it the responsibility to some degree or another, and so too it is in the Christian life. We have the privilege of being called children of God. We've been adopted by God into his family. We have the privilege of having access to God, of prayer and being able to study his word. And with all of those blessings and the knowledge of God, we have the responsibility to live in light of what we know. In Ephesians, Paul covers that in the first three chapters. What a privilege it is to be called the child of God, an ambassador of him, to be redeemed by him, And here he focuses on our responsibility in verse 1. As Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. There's a tremendous responsibility to walk, to live in a way that is worthy of your calling. Call yourself a Christian? and you have a responsibility to walk as one. Paul, he describes himself as a prisoner of the Lord. He describes himself as a prisoner of the Lord for doing what was right. He suffered greatly and had many opportunities by which he shared his faith, and yet it would get him into trouble with the Jews. And yet he called himself a prisoner of the Lord. He was willing to take the suffering that came, willing to sacrifice his own well-being, his own safety for the sake of the truth of the Word of God, willingness to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And it reminded me of many Christians around the world who suffer for the sake of Christ, who have a much more difficult time than we do here, they're ostracized. They may lose their jobs. They may be disowned by their families. They may be in prison. Others, if they're found to be gathering for worship, even on a Sunday, they could be arrested. Paul saw himself as a prisoner of the Lord. And someday, a day may be coming. A day may be coming in which you will be called to take a stand for Christ. When your company or your employer or your neighbors or the law tells you something that is contrary to what the Word of God says that you must do, you too may be a prisoner, not a victim of our society, but a prisoner of the Lord. And he calls us to implore, he implores us to walk in that manner worthy of our calling. That word worthy means the balancing of the scales. In other words, to walk a worthy life is to walk a life that is consistent with our Christian profession. Because, you see, hypocrisy is so easy to spot, isn't it? It's so easy to spot, especially when it's in someone else. We see how other people are so inconsistent. They say this, and yet they act like that. It's most difficult to see. We're often blind to ourselves. So don't judge too quickly. But what is the nature of our worthy walk? For this walk is to be consistent. The nature of it, there are five characteristics here, five characteristics of a person whose testimony is consistent with their calling. And the first here is with humility, with humility, with all humility, verse 2. The characteristic of humility, it's a word that literally means to think or judge with lowliness, to think or judge with lowliness. Particularly in the church at Ephesus, a humble Jew wouldn't look at a Gentile and think that they are better than them in any way. You see, John Wesley noted in neither the Greeks, neither the Romans nor the Greeks had a word for humility. They didn't even have a word for humility because in the Greco-Roman world, to be humble was to be considered slave-like be slave-like, to have this attitude of servitude. They didn't want that. They didn't want to have a humble attitude. That's to think like a slave. What was admired among the Romans was to be what was known as great soul, great soul, to be self-sufficient, to be proud and egotistical, to be the Lord over others, that characteristic of humility was a despised quality of weakness and of cowardice. You're humble? You're a weak coward. In fact, during the early centuries of of Christianity, pagan writers borrowed the term of humility and used it derogatorily frequently of Christians because to be humble was a pitiful weakness. Christ came, though, and His humility was shown in Philippians chapter 2. Christ came, the omnipotent God, the one who was all-powerful, who spoke, and all things came into existence, who came and condescended and limited himself to a human body and the frailty of a person bearing the sins and the suffering on the cross for us. Humility is the idea to judge oneself in lowliness as foreign to the world. Would we be like that? To imagine that when Christ was born, as we will be celebrating his birth in just a few weeks, uh, to celebrate his humility to come to earth. Can you imagine what it would be like if God called you to, to save that, that, that little ant hill out there, perhaps, if there was one, and you were to shrink yourself into uh, Ant-Man without the powers? turn you into an ant and there you were you were to forage for your food and you know you have to cross that street where all the tri- all the cars come by and dodge all of the tires and then to walk across that patio where preschoolers will make it a game to stomp your little life out and then to see this elderly person with pesticide wanting to spray you and then you find your way into the church following your buddies finding your way into the kitchen Counter where these women have no fear of using their palms to smash you and your friends and wash you into the sink, all to get a grain of sugar and walk all the way back out to your little antil and save all the others. Sad. Would you say that's worth it, or would you say they are so not worth it? Yet Jesus, the God of the universe, humbled himself to live among an undeserving people, people who are antagonistic and violent against God, died a brutal death to save you and I humbly. Our world exalts pride. Our world exalts the self-sufficient, self-independent, self-esteem of other, of ourselves. One commentator writes Most of us will admit that we tend to be so self oriented that we see many things first of all and sometimes only in relation to ourselves. But the person who has the word of Christ abiding in him richly, the one who saturates his mind with divine wisdom and truth, asks, How does this affect God? How will it reflect on him? What does he want me to do with this problem or this blessing? How can I most please and honor him in this? He tries to see everything through God's divine grid. The attitude is the basis and the mark of spiritual maturity. With David, the mature Christian can say, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. Unquote. That how you view life? That God is there. God is there in your car when you're driving. That God is there when you are frustrated with your employer, that God is there in your classroom watching. How does this reflect upon God? Humility you see is often outward focused, whereas pride has its focus inward. It was Satan's pride that brought about his fall when he began in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. I will, I will, I will. And so too, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden when they began to think, I want, I want, I want. Humility, on the other hand, is a virtue that's commanded by God. Luke 18 tells us, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled but the one who humbles himself shall be exalted. Secondly, with gentleness. Gentleness is coupled with humility, and it means mild-spirited or self-controlled. It is the opposite of vindictiveness. It is the opposite of vengeance. The person who is gentle isn't a fighter, isn't pugnacious, isn't pugilistic. It doesn't mean that they are somehow weak or timid or a coward, but it does mean that that is under control. The word of gentleness was used of a wild animal that was tamed like a horse that had to be broken. And that horse retained all of its power, all of its strength. But it was now under the bridle of the rider's command. That is to be the Christian as well, that gentleness. Numbers 12 tells us of the most humble person who ever lived, Moses, very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth, lived at that time, I meant. Yet it was he who confronted Pharaoh. It was he who was chosen by God to lead millions of people out of the land of Egypt. A gentle person. One who's not threatening. One who's not feared. One who promotes the safety and security. How do people view you? Do they view you and would they say, this person... This person is a, is a gentle person. They're approachable. They're not threatening. Gentleness and humility. And thirdly, with patience. Patience, verse 2. Literally, it means long-tempered, sometimes translated long-suffering. person who is patient endures. Whether times are good or times are negative, they are times when that patient person will sustain a godly patient attitude. And they are faithful to God in their patience. Christopher Mother, he writes in the Boston Globe an article just a couple of years ago that claims that our, quote, demand for instant results is seeping into every corner of our lives. The need for instant gratification is not new, but our expectation of instant has become faster. The article states, quote, retailers are jumping into same-day delivery services. Smartphone apps eliminate the wait for a cab, a date, or a table at a hot restaurant. Movies and TV shows begin streaming in seconds. But experts caution that instant gratification comes at a price. It's making us less patient. We've come to expect things so quickly that researchers found people can't wait more than a few seconds for a video to load. One researcher examined the viewing habits of 6.7 million internet users. How long are subjects willing to be patient? Two seconds. After that, they start abandoning the site. After five seconds, the abandonment rate is 25%. And when you get to 10 seconds, half are gone. The results offer a glimpse into the future. As internet speeds increase, people will be even less willing to wait for that cute puppy video. The researcher who spent years developing the study worries someday people will be too impatient to conduct studies on patients. (laughs) You know, it was in 2001 that Apple opened their first Apple store, and at the time, 97% of the individuals I read in the little little article. We're still on dial-up. Still on dial-up. I mean, we were happy at the church back when we got our first 14.4k modem, when you listened to all the handshaking that would take place before you finally got a connection, and it was so happy when you could connect. Are you a patient person? You know, Noah was a godly man. He was told by God to build an ark. It was going to rain. It took him 120 years. Abraham was a patient man. He was given a promise at the age of 75, a promise by God at the age of 75 that he would have a son and that son would become his heir. Do you know how long he waited for that child? 25 years. Are you waiting for more children? In the church, are you patient with others when others may think differently, act differently, may have slightly different perspectives. Are you patient with others when they may be having a bad day? Are you patient when others, maybe even you're a Sunday school teacher, when the kids don't behave like you wish that they would? Are you patiently encouraging them, patiently pointing them in the right direction, patiently teaching them, patiently knowing that it takes time to grow, knowing that it takes time to mature, patient with how they are, knowing that God has been patient with you and I. God is so very patient with us, isn't he? So patient. Fourthly, showing tolerance and love. One who is patient with others will put up with non-sinful things because they love them and overlook those faults It's not tolerance for sin that we're talking about. It's not tolerance for false teaching, but it's a tolerance for how people are. People need patience and tolerance. It is out of that agape love, that unconditional, self-sacrificial love, that love that we are called to express to one another, that we bear up against the things that might come Underneath our skin, parents especially put up so very much when they raise us as children over the years. And those of you who are parents are knowing what it is to put up and patience and tolerance. And you overlook some things and you address other things. But because we are sinners, there will always be there will always be people who are difficult to love. Maybe they're relatives or coworkers. Maybe they are people who are family members that rub us the wrong way. But especially in the church. A church that is diverse, a church that grows. It is oftentimes not pleasant sometimes. Some folks, but we are called to love. You know, the holidays are coming up. And oftentimes you have these work parties. Maybe you have family gatherings. Maybe you'll see some family and relatives that you haven't seen for a very long time. Maybe a weekend getaway. Maybe some of these family members... After a while, they just get underneath your skin. They have their issues. They have their outbursts. They have their pride. They have their critical attitudes. They have their bossiness. They have their idiosyncrasies, and so do you. They push your buttons and rub you the wrong way, while you, unbeknownst to you, you do the same thing to them. Do you have people like that in your life? Coworkers that you'd rather not sit at the same table with, but instead of shunning or Shunning them and succumbing to all of the negative thoughts you may have? How about tolerating them in love? Showing patience with them because there is a reason why people are the way they are and many times we don't know why they are the way they are. Maybe they have been hurt way in the past and they have a tendency to hurt others because hurt people often hurt people. Maybe they feel others look down on them, and so they feel the need to prop themselves up by the things that they say. Maybe they simply don't know the Lord Jesus, and so they're simply blinded by their own sin, without the power of God to help them. But whatever their issues are, we think to ourselves, we too have issues, and we too would be in the same shoes as they would be if it were not by God's grace, lost, lost, So we're to be humble and patient, and we're to be forbearing, tolerant. And lastly, to walk with unity as one body under God. For verse 3 says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The idea of being diligent is to make haste. We're to be eager, that's the idea here, to be eager to strive for unity to be eager for that you know in the early church it was so very difficult at first some churches were like the Corinthian church so factioned off when in chapter 1 there were those who said i'm of paul i'm of apollos i am of cephas i'm of christ there were divisions in the early church there was even disputes when it came to the serving of food between the hellenistic Jews and those who were the Jews in Jerusalem great divisions among Christians and Gentiles, Jewish Christians and Gentiles, and it was not uncommon. Where there's conflict that breaks the unity of the church, rather than overlooking offenses, sometimes people go on the offensive. But because we're all sinners, there will inevitably be differences, there will inevitably be conflict, and whether it is between friends and co-workers, relatives, or your neighbors... There will inevitably be conflict. But within the church, God calls us to strive, to be eager to strive for unity, not by saying everyone go to their own corner, but to reach out and love and care and understanding and with patience. Unity comes by asking first and looking at ourselves. That's what all of these characteristics are. Humility looks at ourselves Gentleness focuses on us. Tolerance and love looks at us and says, what can I do in the eyes of God to bless them, to leave them better than when I first met them just a minute ago? Disunity, however, looks at the faults of others, blames others, while unity looks at ourselves first. All conflict comes because of sin, sin that has been pervasive in our world, Yet God has called us to be one. For the foundation is given in verses 4, 5, and 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all, through all. There's a oneness that is created because the Spirit of God has baptized all of his children spiritually into one body, one church, We're to work at that unity. And again, this is not saying to be unified at all costs in order that false teaching or sin might pervade and infect the church. No. But unity is something that sometimes escapes the attitude of some. The churches in Revelation 2 and 3 and the book of 1 Corinthians, there's plenty of instruction where unity is not sought at all costs, but We are to strive for unity, to make peace, to resolve conflict, because it is a characteristic of one who is humble and walks with God. That's what this passage emphasizes. We're to be unified in the truth of the Word of God. So the question then, as we look at our lives, is how is is your walk? How is your walk with God when others see you? Would it be characterized by an approachable gentleness, by a a patience with others, by tolerance despite their idiosyncrasies, by a humility and by being diligent to seek after that unity? Taylor University is a Christian college. There's a story of them. They're located in Indiana, and years ago long before we had all of this exchange with international students, they were very pleased to learn that there was an African student whose name was Sam who was gonna come and enroll in their school. He was a bright young man, he had great promise, and the school felt very honored to have him, and when he arrived on campus, the president of the university took him around on a tour and showed him all of the dorms, showed him the campus, and when the tour was over, the president said to Sam, asked him where he would like to live. The young man replied, quote, if there's a room that no one wants, give that room to me. The president turned away and, because over the years he had welcomed, welcomed thousands of students in. I'm sure he had shown this tour to thousands of Christian men and women. Not one had ever said such a thing. If there's a room that no one wants, give that room to me. That's the kind of meekness Jesus speaks of. The kind of meekness that says, if there's a job that no one else wants to do, I'll do that job. If there's a kid that no one wants to eat lunch with, I'll eat with that kid. If there's a piece of toast that's burnt give me that piece, I'll eat it. If there's a parking space that's far away, I'll take that space. If there's a service time that's less convenient for people, I'll worship at that service. If there's a hardship that someone has to endure, I'll take that hardship. If there's a sacrifice that needs to be made, I'll make that sacrifice. As much as we'd like to pick and choose and say, I'd like the rooms that I'd like to have I'd like the friends that I'd like to have that are like me, that are my favorite, the jobs that I think are the most showy, the rooms that make us feel most comfortable. Perhaps an attitude of humility would do us well, because when we come To Christ, when we're called into the family of God, we've been called to join his university, a place that we learn and grow, where we act and live in a manner that is worthy of the high calling which we have received. We're merely orphans and outcasts, people living a backwards life, who in the privilege of being called into his kingdom, we are to be people who have a humble and patient attitude, tolerant of others, bringing unity rather than division. That is the characteristic of a life that is worthy of the calling which we have received. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I give you thanks. Father, may we look at ourselves and see ourselves in the light of your word as sinners saved by grace as unworthy of the calling which we have received, and yet you have called us and blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms that we might live like your Son, to be more like him. I pray that we would be. In Jesus' name, amen.